starring William Holden, who tops all of his memorable performances as Mark Elliott, foreign correspondent, American and married. And Jennifer Jones, superbly portraying the beautiful Eurasian girl, Han Suyin, whose love defied a world of convention. It wouldn't be good for you to see too much of me anyhow. Might even be harmful. Oh, why? I'm Eurasian. The word itself seems to suggest a certain moral laxity in the minds of some people. The white colony of Hong Kong, where all the filming took place in scenes of breathtaking beauty, pointed to the differences in their skins, their countries, their background, but their love would not be denied. You don't know about me. You kiss a girl and it doesn't mean anything to you. Just a kiss. But it isn't so with me. I, I have never known any man but my husband. I feel on the brink of something. This is a true, unforgettable story of a forbidden romance, as Han Suyin herself tells it with unembarrassed frankness and exquisite sensitivity. You're not Eurasian. Your pride and sense of dignity are not involved. Of course they're involved. You're not something I picked up off the street, and you're oversensitive about being Eurasian. I don't want anything sordid to... Sordid? I'm in love with you. Don't you understand that, Suyin? I love you. that many splendid thing. Welcome to a special sub-series of the Screen West Screen podcast called Hollywood on Hong Kong. In this short series, we're going to be looking at select Western film portrayals in and about the fragrant harbor. Joining me on this journey of cinematic discovery is a podfather of Asian cinema, co-founder of the Podcast on Fire Network, Mr. Kenny B. Hey folks, thanks for having me, Paul, and uh, thanks for introducing me yet again to another, to another movie, which is uh, either very depressing, because I should be better and i should have watched more movies you know in reality but, but maybe it's your your sort of parental tactic to get me away from the crap and introduce me to proper respectful cinema by doing it in a podcast and that means i'll do the work maybe that's i i'm on to you i'm on to you i figured out your <laughs> tactics well, but, we'll see. We'll it, see. But it's okay. I enjoy yeah. it. So that's okay. We are in uh, sort of the tail end of this series now, entering into the third section. So, Kenny B, are you in the mood for love? Oh, <laughs> I was like, I don't want to do that. I don't, don't, don't want to talk about that movie. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a love Hong Kong style is never a, never a bad thing. There's uh, plenty of facets uh, to it, as a matter of fact. And uh, uh, looking at the choices that I know uh, you're going to do, it's all going to be um, new movies for me. And um, uh, and I'm, I know for one of the upcoming episodes, uh, the prep is going to include two movies because there's one movie made at one point and a later movie made in Hong Kong that's a response to that movie so I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, adding context to my prep and things like that and that work Paul I greatly enjoy and therefore I'm always uh, thankful for what you uh, choice uh, what your choices are and uh, what you you make me do I'm, I'm happy to do it so and we're thankful that you're here to join us and if you're out there listening we're thankful that you are listening if you don't know, in developing the programming for this series, uh, we looked at a range of films and broke them down into a few subcategories. So previously we've gone through films that covered colonial Hong Kong uh, up into the handover. We recently closed out a very short series on Hong Kong hijinks. And now we move into this sixth episode of this series and into the subgenre that we like to call uh, love Hong Kong style. So this is, I guess, not a genre that appeals to everybody. Uh, you know, I wouldn't necessarily relegate these to the category of chick flicks or anything like that. Um, but for sure, for sure, there are genre fans out there who really look to 
films about Hong Kong to be about things like action or martial arts or gunfu or those kind of things. But uh, long before we had that, we, of course, had Hollywood looking to Hong Kong as a kind of Paris of the East, an exotic setting for romance, if you will. So we're going to kick off this series um, with this first film, uh, the 1955 film, Love is a Many Splendored Thing. Before we get into talking to the film proper, we should probably talk a little bit about where this film comes from. This is from the book called A Many Splendored Thing, written in 1952 by Han Suyin. Uh, Han Suyin is the pen name for the doctor slash writer um, known as Elizabeth Comber, or also uh, her birth name, Rosalie Matilda Kwanghu Chao, if I'm pronouncing the Pudong correctly. Um, she was a Eurasian, uh, born of a Chinese father and a Flemish mother, and she was very active as both a doctor but also as a writer. And this is one of the more famous works known by her simply because it went from being um, a novel that was popular into uh, this very famous Hollywood film, which then kind of led to subculture movements in other places, a very popular song. It even spun off into a sequel, um, Daytime Soap Opera, which we'll talk briefly about, um, and even coming back to touch a little bit on uh, Hong Kong cinema in places. Um, she did pass away in 2012, not too long ago, but she leaves behind a very solid body of writing work. And I think most people who follow Chinese literature will have um, heard of her, if not have read uh, any of her work. And that begs the question, have you uh, read uh, the novel uh, This Is Based On? Out no, of interest? I have not. I actually have the novel in my library. Um, it's one of those impulse buys that you say, you know, I need to I need to edify myself and I need to get around to reading this. And you order it and then you put it on the shelf and there it remains for um, time. And you forget about it and kind of runs back in your mind say, yeah, I need to get to that, but I'm kind of in the middle of reading the third Crazy Rich Asians book, so I don't have time right <laughs> now. So, uh, yeah, other things tend to pop up. But, um, you know, it is there, and um, it's pretty easily uh, easy to come by, um, although I do think I had to buy a used copy off of um, eBay because I don't think there's a current reprinting of it out there on the market. Um, but there's lots of them around. You should be able to find one uh, if you have used bookstores near you or, you know, very easily through um, various online sources. Of course, the earlier books have collector's value to them. So you'll find some books out there that are, you know, really expensive. And and if you're just looking to read the story, you don't need to go that route. There are other printings and editions out there that you can easily get a hold of if um, that's something that interests you. Um, not a uh, not a James Clavell uh, doorstop, but it's I gather. No, no, definitely not. <laughs> It is it is definitely laugh, lacking in the heft, or, or the heft and the weight of a James Clavell uh, novel. Um, you won't keep yourself warm if you turn it into kindling for very long. <laughs> but um, yeah, it is. It, it, it looks like it's a pretty um, a pretty quick read. And as we go through the story, I mean, not a whole lot to the story um, in terms of um, some of the themes we'll be talking about. Some, but some interesting bits to be sure. To talk a little bit about the impact on this in terms of popular culture, I mean, I, as a young child, perhaps even before I had interest specifically in Hong Kong, but was, you know, had some interest in Asian cinema, I had heard of this title simply through the song. The song, uh, Love is a Many Splendid Thing, that's used in the film here, was recorded by a group called The Four Aces. It actually won for Best Film Song uh, that year at the 28th Academy Awards. It has gone on to be re-recorded over the years by lots of people. It's considered a staple of performance artist Engelbert Humperdinck, if you know him, uh, and some of the shows that he does. It's been uh, covered by people like Ringo Starr, Frank Sinatra, Nat King Cole, Barry Manilow. Um, even in more recent eras, you've got a disco version, and uh, Jeff Lynne of, I think, ELO also did a version in a, re a cover in a recent album he did back in 2012. So Jesus. it's got um, life. It's got a lot of life to it, and it's um and and and, and yet it sounds very um, era specific. I, I mean, timeless, sure. But when you listen to it, it's not like, yeah, 
Yeah. This this sounds curt because it's very um uh, at least as delivered in the movie it's a very uh, uh, operatic as delivered in the movie. So it's not uh, something you tune uh, tune to you know turn on the radio and listen to in 1980 necessarily but you know when you rearrange it I'm sure it comes to life in vastly different ways despite being very recognizable because I haven't heard any of the subsequent uh, covers. Yeah. So. I I I've got to imagine that there may be like actually a uh, heavy metal, like, you know, hard rock <laughs> shouting version of this out there somewhere, But I think as a child, I remember first encountering this when I saw the movie Grease. And in a very early scene in the movie Grease, I think it's used very briefly when the two main characters are having their kind of summer romance on the beach. And it parallels, you know, uh, the scene from the film we have here. And... There, you know, there is the the idea too that um, because it becomes a part of popular culture, then gets utilized in you know lots of other things as well, showing up in other films. Um, I don't remember it, but I did see Howard Stern's um, film that's based on his life called Private Parts, and it's mm -hmm. apparently used in that film. There's a British film series called Saint Trinians that I have not seen but it's fairly recent and it's been used in, in that film series as well. And I'm sure there are others that, you know, people could dig up over the years where it's been used as, if not a riff, you know, part of the song is used in a very, um, you know, brief scene somewhere, because again, it, it has this idea of, uh, kind of a true summer romance kind of nostalgia that it brings along with it. Um, yeah. The title itself, too, as Ken reminded me before the show, actually carries back to a Hong Kong film, uh, Wong Jing's Love is a Many Stupid Thing, which isn't really about a sort of East-West romance. It is actually kind of a parody of the Infernal Affairs film series, if you haven't seen that. Um, but it's fairly fun. If, you know, that's the kind of thing you're into, you should probably track it down and give it a look if you don't mind uh, silly, cheesy, stupid comedies. And uh, it's, again, making the riff off the title, but I don't think I remember the song or any variation of the song uh, being used therein. It doesn't sound like uh, a movie that uh, was revered for decades and decades in Hong Kong, necessarily. I never got the vibe from it that they, they consider this uh, like a hometown hometown movie or whatever. So, but, you know, uh, Wong Jing has been around, so I'm sure he knows of it. So, or, or someone in the marketing department. Yeah, for yeah. for the English title because I, I, the the Chinese title might be riffing on infernal affairs. As a matter of fact, I guess one of the more interesting legacies to come out of this film is the television drama daytime soap opera uh, that took the same name, "Love Is a Many Splendid Thing" or "Splendid Thing." If you gotta you know enunciate correctly to get the pronunciation correct, um, which started in uh, 1967. And interestingly, this was created as a sequel to the film, with the lead character being a descendant of the two leads in the film who had moved to San Francisco or somewhere in California. And um, it was interesting for the time because the actress Nancy Sue, if I'm saying her name correctly, was cast uh, as this, this sort of central character. And then uh, later the CBS censors, um, they kind of killed it because they were uncomfortable with the idea of an interracial love story um, between an Amerasian woman and, um, I guess, a, a leading male white man. And apparently there was another subplot that involved abortion and things like this. And so eventually uh, her character was, they, they fired the head writer who had come up with all this or she quit because of the, the tensions with the network and the, the censors. And then new writers came on and her character was completely written out of the series wow. a year later. When you think about some of the elements we're going to talk about in this film, about this very idea of interracial relationships, even with a character who's mixed by birth, um, and then some of the pressures and some of the prejudices that come with that. And then you say, hey, we're going to make a sequel to that. And then that sequel gets completely reworked over because of those same ideas. Mm. There's a strong sense of irony um, that can be found within in that, especially when it's coming out, you know, all dec a decade or an, and a half later even. so Yeah, you wonder why, why all of a sudden there was 
a sense of insecurity after the movie that clearly made an impact was deemed okay because uh, I never got the impression that this movie was uh, hated and protested against because of the romantic element uh, you know by by critics or people or whatever it seems like they made it and it came out and it did its thing on the award circuit and uh, no one batted an eyelid as such or, or was shocked by this yeah. notion yeah you know I guess we, if we looked at the era in which I think she wrote the book in 1952 it's based on it's not completely autobiographical, but it's based on her experiences. Um, the, the the main character is the name she uses for a pen name. She herself was a physician. She had, you know, a couple romances, and some of the story elements of those romances are, again, mirrored in the movie. So I'm guessing she's basing some of what that is written here on personal experience for the era. But again, you think, okay, time marches on things get a bit more progressive, especially in the late 60s, heading into the 70s, you would think that uh, things would have gotten better rather than <laughs> remained mm. the same. But apparently they didn't. And again, here I'm, we're speaking about this in 2018 when, you know, things <laughs> still don't seem to have gotten a whole lot better um, in certain yeah, parts It's strange of the world, that the, so. it's a cycle uh, after something is progressive for a while and then it takes a complete uh, op- uh, like a complete opposite stance and a no style is taken if we talk projects you know entertainment project is it's it's strange that it's so um, that, that it spikes and then goes down and spikes and then goes down uh, for no real reason you can interpret other than so to say clever people that are bosses of of it all right. deeming that this is not where the public are not ready i mean crap i mean maybe in 10 years uh, time someone will try to make a uh, a romantic comedy with an all asian cast and some executive will be super nervous and no one will remember the fact that it was okay it, that we did that it made money when we did that yeah. i where we're at now with crazy rotation so who knows we're going to have that uh, up and down thing yeah. well it's, yeah, it's it's exactly like you said because people were talking about i think we were talking about this on the episode where we covered the crazy rich asians film and i mentioned you know my big fear is that a film like that comes out whether you like the film you think it's a good film or not it is kind of a historic landmark film for what it's doing but then the hype goes away and then the wave recedes right because we saw mm. this back in i want to say uh the late 90s early 2000s with uh, you know a comedian margaret cho she had this series called all american girl Mm-hmm. about a Korean-American family, and it was, you know, all Asians there in the family. And then that was considered, oh, you know, this landmark kind of show, very progressive show, and went for a couple seasons, eventually got canceled, and then that went away. And you had nothing like that uh, in the States until, you know, what is it, two or three seasons ago with the show that Constance Wu is now uh, on called Fresh Off the Boat. Right. You know, so you've got this. Is that, is that comedy or drama? I've only is, heard of the name. It, it is comedy. Yeah, it's a, right. Um, but and you, but but again, you had this long period in between, where again there was no kind of show like that for uh, Asians, at least in the United States. So mm-hmm. um, it it is these waves that come and go, and hopefully we're going to ride this wave for a bit, and, and you know it'll lead to more positive change rather than a recession. <laughs> Well, it's kind of cool in a way not to hop on on uh, Crazy Rich Asians. Number one, I haven't seen it, uh, at least uh, not yet in a way. But uh, yeah, yes, it's a romantic romantic comedy, as you said. It's not uh, trying to be a full-on social commentary that's going to hit you hard in the stomach and you better understand it. But I'm I'm kind of glad that it's making the impact in the following way where people go, ooh, when they see Michelle Yeoh uh, on talk shows or whatever. I, I don't particularly like James Corden, but when they did that skit where uh, the star of Crazy Rich Asians needed to, uh, and he needed to have approval to go on the show. So Michelle Yeoh came on to play her character from the movie, and as soon as the the skit showed that she appeared, people went like, oh, like, oh it's on now. And I, and I know it sounds lame and such, but you, I never expected Michelle Yeoh to get that kind of like uh, approval reaction, and uh, it's from the fact that she got to head this movie along with a few other people in an actual way, and and, and not this um, 
offensive way to her like it, it didn't sound like a role where they they go for the lowest common jokes about the stern mama or whatever so right. you know it, it, it's kind of cool how, how it's for the moment anyway it seems to have an impact all right well, let's get into talking about our film proper for this week, Love is a Many Splendored Thing. This film was directed by Henry King, who is a, you know, an old establishment figure. He directed um, quite a few movies over the years. He's only got a partial filmography listed on uh, Wikipedia because he's done so many films. But he's notable because he's one of the original founders of the Academy. Um, you know, so that's the kind of generation of old filmmakers that we're talking about. Um, and he's done, you know, just probably so many films that I, I had a hard time picking any to make mention of here, but the one that popped out for me was um, his version of Hemingway's uh, The Sun Also Rises, and which he does a few years after this film. Again, we get into certain ideas when we get into the directing, the casting, the writing, or the screenplay writing here, even though it's based on a book by um, Eurasian woman. The story itself, if you're not familiar, widowed Eurasian Dr. Han Suyen, played by Jennifer Jones, falls in love with a married but separated American correspondent, Mark Elliott, played by William Holden, uh, when they meet in Hong Kong. During a colonial period in China's Civil War era, the late 1940s, when this is when uh, communists were fighting against the nationalists, there's a lot happening in Hong Kong's a very bustling period, and it's on the brink of the Korean War. Um, they briefly find happiness together, but she is ostracized by both the greater Chinese community and the Western community, um, you know, that is in charge of things like the hospital that she works at. So Suyin and her adopted daughter go to live with a friend for a while while Mark is on assignment to cover the Korean War. And I'll leave it at that without uh, going too much more into the story for fear of spoilers. Um, let's talk a little bit at first about the two leads on whom most of this movie rests. And that is William Holden as Mark Elliott and Jennifer Jones as Han Suyin. So a little bit of gossipy gossip at the first, and this is pulled from a couple sources um, and up on Wikipedia, despite the fact that this is a romance film and that, you know, there does seem to be some chemistry on screen, it is said that Holden and Jones could not stand each other on set. Um, Fantastic. Holden was turned off by Jones' obsessive involvement with her character and complaints about her makeup, which she said made her look old. And we're going to talk a little bit about the sort of yellow face that's going on here or, you know, mixed yellow face, I guess we could say. Um, the the idea, uh, she's also obsessed about her costumes, about her dialogue. Uh, it says soon they were barely speaking to one another. According to a biography on Holden, um, she was generally rude to and abrasive to everyone involved in the production. Um, he says that... Um, she was worried about Holden's reputation as a womanizer. Holden claimed she chewed garlic before her love scenes, um, <laughs> which was done in a belief to discourage him. Uh, it said that once, at one point, Holden tried to make peace, offering her a bouquet of white roses, and she tossed them back in his face. You know what so. that reminds me of? Uh, it's uh, you, Do you remember the movie The Man from Hong Kong, starring uh, Jimmy Wang Yu? I haven't seen that one yet. No. Hi, it's a fantastic Australian uh, movie directed by Brian Trenchard Smith and Jimmy Wang Yu. You know, he, he was big uh, at the, that part of the seventies, yeah. and he was apparently, and everybody says so, uh, which your president says as well. But everybody says this that Jimmy Wang Yu was a total break to everyone on set, and he, he even in one of his brief love scenes with uh, a character that doesn't appear that long in The Man from Hong Kong. Apparently, he like chewed on insects and things like that before kissing her because he didn't like white women and i don't know if that is exaggerated but everybody everybody on that production including mm -hmm. brian trenchard smith who is a lovely man and he 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 doesn't gossip just for the sake of it but everybody says that jimmy was um, a total nightmare to, to work with then the movie turns out to be a kick-ass film including from jimmy himself and there it's got some australian stunt gung-ho attitude like Australia had at that point and then leading into Mad Max and what have you. So uh, uh, when I read that, uh, it was uh, all Jimmy Wang Yu bells uh, went off. So both men and women can be apparently uh, this way, making movies. Yeah, I guess diva behavior pays off in you know some circles. I'm reminded of the 
a Christian Bale outburst. I think it was on the set of Terminator 3 or something. Um, well, the and, uh, whatever, whatever Salvation was in number yeah, yeah. by that point. Terminator 4, I don't know. Anyway, but you, you, you Good hear, for you! <laughs> you hear all oh, these yeah, stories. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, of just really bad behavior. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, they can pull off credible performances, and I guess that's why they get uh, the big bucks, right? Um, so what did you still, think still, of the chemistry? Still, still intolerable, uh, still intolerable behavior. Sorry. Yeah, absolutely. But what did you feel about the chemistry with, um, William Holden, Jennifer Jones? I'm assuming this is the first time you've encountered them in a cinematic space. Well, William Holden, I've seen in the wild bunch, okay. uh, at least, uh, it's been a while since I saw that, but, uh, he's, and he, he, you know, I wouldn't have been able to pick him out necessarily from towards him from the Wild Bunch because he looks more rugged in the Wild Bunch. It's a bit later too as well, 69 or 70 or whatever. Uh, her I've uh, never heard of, again, my ignorance here. Uh, but uh, chemistry-wise, um, it needs to be good. It isn't. And unfortunately, I think it makes sense that uh, if, if there was problems backstage that uh, it's not easy at all times to translate that into involving romance where you sort of you cry in your heart for uh, for these characters as well for them to get the get the best result out of their uh, out of their hurdles uh, the the romance with uh, tons of hurdles but i think it's pretty pretty flat actually no wouldn't say bad because the, the the movie has some more mature ideas in terms of the background drama, the drama between characters and how they react to uh, tragedy. But um, this core element needed to be better, definitely. And uh, I don't think it's uh, just because the movie's old or anything. I think they a romance could be clinched and survive uh, even in 2018 if chemistry was good. But uh, this uh, wasn't, in my opinion. So. What about you? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's okay. William Holden, we'll see a lot more of him going forward in this series, of course. And this was something that helped firmly establish him as a leading man of the East. And there's a movie, and I can't remember for the life of me what movie it is, where a character talks about have, having had an affair with William Holden when he was in Hong Kong. Uh, filming this film and mm. I just I was scratching my brain all week trying to say trying to remember <laughs> what that movie was because it's a it's a it's a Chinese woman in, in Hong Kong if I'm remembering correctly and she she talks longingly about this you know torrid romance that she had with the actor and she's got pictures of him like up on his wall and I just I can't further remember for the life of me remember what it was so if you're out there listening and you remember what that is you know, please write in or comment and, and uh, refresh my memory. Um, and, but, and World Wide Web search engines didn't do a trick for I him. Could, like, you could find nothing of, of that, <laughs> yeah. My, my Google was like, William was, Holden romance, William Holden poster yeah. on walls. Damn it. It's not well, working. My, my Google foo was not uh, strong this week. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but it, it does kind of set him as this kind of leading man-ish character. And he looks really good here. It's, it'll be interesting to see how you think he compares in just a few short years when he does the next film that we're going to talk about. Mm. Um, which, for me, between the characters, not a whole lot of variation, a little bit more of the same. But where the difference comes in is with the leading actress, which I think um, this film, Jennifer Jones, is grading, I want to say, um, for a couple reasons. First, you do have the idea of her donning makeup to look more Asian. And some in some scenes it's heavier than in other scenes. They 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 it's got a, got a heavier hand to it, I would say. And I mean, I don't want to get too much into the politics of you know, is this right for a white woman to play a mixed woman? I mean, I you know, is it okay for a pure Asian woman to play a mixed woman? I mean, there's a lot of debate to be had around that. Mm -hmm. But performance-wise, just based on the performance, it feels very old Hollywood what she's doing and it doesn't match up i think with Wil william holden's performance doing performance wise if you, what i say by old hollywood if you look at like old black and white hollywood movies the way they used to have women act and emote 
it has this certain style to it when they monologue and when they talk about things and they use their vo voice in a certain way which doesn't feel natural anymore um, and it's fine for the era and, and the time but at a certain point you start to see Hollywood cinema shift a little bit and I think this is one of those films where it starts to shift because you can see performances by other people where they're not kind of doing that old Hollywood actress or actor you know acting and I think you know it's just it, it's it's grading for me for the most part um, and you know going forward too because there's a supporting character here in the character of Su Chen which is the sister of um, Han Su Yin and she is played by another all-white actress named uh, Donna Martell who was famous for a lot of TV stuff did a lot of westerns in the period and I think was on shows like Bonanza and things um, but here too you know they're making her up to look um, more av more Asian than not and she is a you know mixed Eurasian character and you know they do have Asian actors in places um, and minor roles and and her friend and her husband uh, her friend Nora and her husband for example are played by um, Asian actors or Asian American actors I guess for the time and they're fine they're they're great in the short things that they're asked to do but overall I think that with the leads yeah Jennifer Jones's performance comes across as a little bit outdated a little bit grating for me um, now you didn't buy into the romance all that much right Ken you know, because uh, I mean, it, it's kind of okay because of the maturity. It, it eventually, uh, and and I won't discuss it because it involves spoilers. But eventually, the the, the emotional response to to certain events is um, was notable for me. But um, it, it is an old Hollywood movie. It uh, sort of positions itself as um, mass audience friendly, meaning that uh, characters. Uh, meet and uh, there, there has to be charm there between uh, between uh, between uh, whether it's the man taking charge or, or vice versa I don't know and and he certainly con comes off as that, as that uh, William Holden that's a charming cheeky chap he uh, he he sort of uh, suggests that uh, when you're off work next uh, we'll go on a date but he isn't uh, he's not uh, too forward or too uh, too nauseating in that regard and uh, I think I never had a problem with him, but uh, I, the engagement in the characters at one point sort of halted because I didn't really buy their growing affection for each other, despite uh, the movie laying out very clearly what her reservations are about in terms of falling in love again versus staying true to her path of um, helping people because she's a doctor and uh, shutting out any notions of love or being weak and just and uh, letting love in her heart again all of that is spelled out very clear so sometimes it's coming right out of the character's mouths which is okay because it's not like jennifer jones does uh, monologues about uh, my heart is shut looking at the moon you know my heart is shut and i, I won't open it again i won't hold <laughs> you know it, it's it's just dialogue and uh, that's all fine but uh, at at one point, you know, you had the beach scene, and they they grow more closer to each other. Uh, and uh, at one point, I realized it's not really going anywhere where you start to feel for them, even in a sort of basic romance way. And when the stakes are higher, in terms of uh, will they get approval to uh, go ahead as a couple and marry and that that they follow their hearts and go against tradition, which is not a huge spoiler. I I, I was hoping that the movie would have a slightly stronger beat in that regard. I, I'm not looking for a massive, emotionally nuanced masterpiece because it is mass audience entertainment. But at one point, I just thought it, the connection wasn't very well conveyed and... Uh, and I think a lot of that falls on her, to be honest. Your observations about her acting and even the makeup, I, I couldn't really pick up and pick out as such. Maybe it's just I'm effing blind, maybe. But it it, it, it wasn't like, yeah, I, I mean, it's an extreme example, but it wasn't like, the, you know, breakfast at Tiffany's no, kind no, of no, uh, not, stereotyping. Not, not at all. I mean, if I look at other pictures of her, 
and looking at her here because I know she's American and she's uh, she she has a uh, English accent and all of that here. But I, I I didn't spot like obvious makeup to make her look more Asian that ventured into oh my god this is so offensive. I was looking at the character and trying to engage in the character, but the writing they give her and her sort of sort of she she has a she has a slightly hard edge. She's uh, which is part of the intent, but then she, that hard edge kind of remains. So to see her then um, open up and fall in love again and that happiness, I didn't really buy that because she still carried with her uh, a lot. I don't know. I it felt a little bit ice cold and insincere. Her her acting like she's happy and. Uh, having fallen in love again i didn't buy that and i wanted to buy that core more actually um but but maybe if you flip it a little bit um, that that whole issue of setting it against the backdrop of uh, many refugees coming into hong kong and her trying to decide where her heart lies I don't know if it's more mature for a movie of this kind but i think that element that historical element in the background and the choices each character makes because he's a journalist uh, and where they you know where their heart wants to go i thought that was quite mature and somewhat more nuanced than maybe i was expecting that they 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 set it against a, a serious backdrop it doesn't make an all all out you know technicolor cinema scope everything's fantastic type of frame yeah, so it, it it's it strives for a little bit more reality and i that i was on board with and that carried over into the emotional responses to uh, certain tragic events towards uh, the latter reels and all of that and uh, it, it didn't uh, venture into this uh, theatrical melodrama which i in my maybe naive head was expecting i, I was expecting you know the woe is me melodrama and the characters were directed and the writing was uh, a little bit more thought out in terms of how how such characters can react uh, hearing uh, bad mm. news and what have you so that that element was good and even if you don't know of the history of uh, did they talk about why refugees are coming into hong kong that exposition i thought was fairly well done they don't stop the movie they talk of it at a few in, at a few instances here and there what is going on currently but that is probably the movie's strongest point that it dares to bring in. Uh, you know, it, it, it's not all sunshine. This fact that a lot of refugees are coming into Hong Kong and that there's, um, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, a, you know, a crisis very near them. And I don't know if it's considered brave, but I appreciated it, that it uh, didn't uh, shut its uh, eyes uh, towards that reality. But it, it didn't go all, all you know. Uh, war, big war scenes and uh, big uh, big cinema scope scenes of refugees coming into Hong Kong. They didn't do that, but it's talked of and it's felt in a decent way. I thought so. Um, if anything, I took away that uh, from the movie mostly, rather than the romance, which might not have been the intent, you know. But uh, yeah, yeah. There's quite a bit of interesting, uh, I would say, juxtaposition between some of the historical aspects and you know, what, what the characters are going through. Again, I think a lot of this is based on um, uh, Dr. Han, Han Suyun's own experience that she's kind of writing in uh, to the novel here. And I, the, you know, the, the idea of her as a woman, her as a doctor, um, you know, being educated abroad to become a doctor and then coming back to Hong Kong and her desire to help her people she because she considers herself more Chinese than than Western um, I think that all starts off really well and especially in the beginning in in her in inter, initial interactions with Mark Elliott there's a lot of like you know sparring back and forth which I think is really clever like you know in in the first time they want to go out for a date he's come to meet her and the night before he's met her at a party and she's wearing sort of the traditional Chinese Chang Sam and then the when they go out for the date she's wearing sort of western attire and he says mm -hmm. oh why are you, you know why are you dressed like why are you dressed in european clothes 
Um, and she's like, well, I'm going out with you as a European. <laughs> and he, she mm-hmm. says, oh, but I really liked that, you know, what you were wearing yesterday. And she's like, okay, I'll send it to you as a present. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, so she's, you know, that, that kind of snarky back and forth I thought was really good at the first, but they get away from that very, very quickly as kind of the yeah. relationship develops. And then it's just kind of... Uh, okay, you know they're trying. She feels a little bit like a smarty pants at some points, yeah. uh, which which made her a bit more cold and more a little bit too much know-it-all, which is a slight exposition at the same time as the story moves along. But uh, it, that uh, warmth never came through, and uh, I don't know if it's something uh, that I simply don't like about the actress. Maybe having read the gossip beforehand, I was focusing on. Yeah, that scene that didn't like each other. That scene that definitely didn't like each other. She had garlic in her mouth in that scene. Maybe I did that, <laughs> but she 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 did feel uh, a little bit icy at uh, at some points, and then the writing made her uh, a little bit, uh, uh, you know, uh, a know-it-all, if you will. Well, let's talk a little bit beyond uh, the the narrative and and into the use of Hong Kong here um, as. You know, because we've seen Hong Kong being used for historical purposes, and we've seen it as a place for wacky hijinks, and now it is a Paris of the East. It is a place for romance to occur. Um, one of the things they did with this film, and apparently it's very unusual for them to have done this, and I don't know if this is really the first film where we get some true on-location shooting. Um, there are films about Hong Kong um, that predate this. I'm think I think Ronald Reagan's film just called Hong Kong predates this, but I don't know how much actual location shooting uh, they've done in the, in that film. That is something that we'll likely revisit for uh, a later season, and I'll do some further research in that area. Um, but one of the things they did for this was they actually went and did location shooting prior to them actually having finished the screenplay. So. They really? they did a lot of location sh- film work initially, and then they tried to work in as much as they could as the screenplay was being finalized. But you do get quite a few shots of uh, famous places. Uh, some of these um, you can spot for yourselves if you're familiar with Hong Kong, but a lot of Hong Kong has changed. So Wikipedia, for example, notes that um, the hospital where Han Xin works is actually a very famous old residence that was located up on Conduit Road. It became the Foreign Correspondence Club for a while, um, which is uh, you know, a place that's very much in the news today for various reasons we don't need to get into, but that eventually moved, and now it's um, just a big high-end apartment complex, as I understand it. Um, we've also They also have the old Repulse Bay Hotel, uh, which has been also demolished and has been replaced by an, another apartment building. So you get a chance to see a few historic locations that you just can't see anymore outside of films like this and old photos. Um, one place we have seen quite extensively <laughs> throughout this series mm-hmm. is, of course, the Taipak Floating Restaurant, um, which, I never registered that uh, it was called Taipak. I'm sure you've said it, but I've, in my head, the floating restaurant thing. Yeah. Right, but, um, here, but here we see an effing sign, so that finally Ken gets it. <laughs> yeah, I think I think in the other stuff it might have become Jumbo. Uh, it, it, it's hard to say, depending on, on when filming, because we talked a little bit about that last time. Um, but here it is again, and there's a great scene where they're boarding a small sampan to go across uh, to the restaurant, as you would normally do, and... It's a really well done shot. I had to go back and rewatch it a few times because it shows the the two leads getting into the boat, and there are two sandpen drivers, and one of them is just a a lady with a baby on her back, and they are, you know, slowly paddling out um, to the shot, and they've got a shot of the boat, background of Hong Kong, the two actors in the boat, and the two uh, women drivers there, and then it's a close up of the actor and actress. And it's one of those where, I don't know what the technique is called, but the old technique when they wanted to do an in-studio close-up and then they just run film in the background. Well, it's um, a rear screen projection. Yeah, rear screen projection. But, but really well made for this movie because it's not like they do driving scenes where they uh, move the steering wheel way too intensely and they're just yeah. going straight ahead in the actual rear screen footage. <laughs> so it, it's, uh, it's very convincing, to yeah. be honest. Way better than even... 
some green and blue screen stuff nowadays. Indeed, and the layout. I mean, I was lo- I as I went back and watched, I was like, is that the same chair that was in the wide shot when they're actually in Hong Kong? Yeah, it's the same chair. They got the same little sign back there. So, um, a really good attention to detail and to continuity, I think, uh, for the you know given the period that we're talking about. There's another great scene. I mean, for me, almost worth the price of admission is the opening credit uh, montage mm-hmm. because it is an aerial shot going into Hong Kong Harbor and then over many of the buildings, um, which I'm guessing it's hard for me to recognize, could be Kowloon side, but I think it might be um, it might be on Hong Kong side. Uh, I, it's just so unrecognizable for me today because of, you know, the amount of changes that have happened. But it is, you know, you look at something like that today and you go, if that was being done in a movie today, it'd either be a drone shot or it'd be CG, Hmm. you know. Um, Back then, they just had to have hired a plane and put a guy with a camera rig on the, you know, side of a plane. And I don't know. A film camera. biplane maybe, guy on a wing, who knows. But it's a really long, just incredible shot of Hong Kong. And if you're somebody who likes... You know, just seeing the city in various stages over the years, um, that for me is just worth the price of admission alone, as I said. Um, it even goes over um, the area with all the fishing boats, so it doesn't just show the uh, city skyline. But, uh, you know, we, we get the contrasts of Hong Kong, which yeah. uh, was indeed very nice. Just uh, those time capsules, uh, uh, they're, they're simply beautiful. And uh, I don't know, it, it's something about... Technicolor Cinemascope that just brings out elegance automatically, even in shots like this. And then to, to the movie's credit, you know, technically it uh, is uh, sp- spot on, and that wide screen literally is uh, always appealing to me. And uh, even though they, they they don't use it to craft like uh, left frame right frame interactions that would be lost on video but i, I don't know it's it, i like it when they are allowed to use this width even for a basic romance and 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 literally it does show off hong kong whether you know rear screen or actual location shooting in such a uh, beautiful way and, and especially now that the movie looks even more pristine uh, and things like that so that that sticks with me even if the story doesn't uh, as such um, the other, I guess, shot worth mentioning is the shot of the tree. They meet under this tree up on a hillside. Uh, for quite a few scenes of the movie, it becomes a little bit iconic with the movie, aside from the the beach or slash bay scene that many people remember. The um, That scene, in, in, as I read, itself is not in Hong Kong. That's a California shot. So there's a couple interesting sh- shots where you see... For example, William Holden walking upstairs that are very clearly in Hong Kong and then a reverse of um, the Jennifer Jones character standing under the tree waving very clearly in California. So, again, it's this dislocation of uh, time and space uh, through editing, which I, you know, once I know something like that, it's 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 just a very interesting idea in, in my mind. I think for the general audience, it's just like, yeah, it's seamless. You know, you just wouldn't think much. I think for anybody who's been spent considerable time in Hong Kong, when you see them up on the mountain and you kind of see all the landscape in the background, you'd kind of get the idea that, yeah, that's not really Hong Kong. There's a bit too many mountains. It's a bit too, it's, it's there's just a bit too much terrain there. But um, for the most part, I think it's still, it's edited in, in a very seamless way. And there's, you know, pretty good attention to detail throughout. Um, there's a scene, a fortune telling scene at one point where, they're talking, they go to a fortune teller in a moment where they're all happy and they're, they want to know about their futures. And she's doing the, they're doing sand writing fortune telling, which I'm not familiar with. And they do a beetle race fortune telling. I'm also not familiar with, but they do stick fortune telling, which is where you go to the temple and you shake this uh, cylinder full of sticks. And the one that falls out is the one that tells your fortune. Um, but I don't know if, they just were in a rush or sh- she wasn't sure how to do it or they didn't have a good consultant because she just dumps the stick, <laughs> the, 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 the tube of sticks over and one comes out. And okay, that works. But normally you kneel down and you kind of shake it for a few minutes and then one yeah, slowly works its way out. And 
And you should take their time. Yeah. So, um, but other than that, I think, you know, just it's, it's a solid film in terms of the technical side of it. And for me, it's worth what worth it for that. But for somebody who's not into that as much as I am, I think the story, you might find it a little bit boggy, a little bit, um, a, a little bit less to be engaged with there. So, uh, I couldn't give it a strong recommendation unless you're somebody who's really interested in sort of the historic side of Hong Kong. I, I wondered during my viewing if uh, if many movies or any movies had showcased extensively uh, going to uh, the family for approval of uh, marriage and the, uh, the consequences of that, him being a Westerner, she being Eurasian, because the movie gives attention to that in a sequence where she does go to... Um, China or Macau, uh, I forgot, but, yeah, but regardless, uh, uh, William Holden is there with her. And to me, again, I don't know many things about anything really. Uh, it seemed to me that the movie was respectful enough to not make this simply a 30 second scene. Can I? No, I will anyway. You know, it, it, <laughs> it, it, it sat down and tried and, and seemed to show tradition meaning that you ask permission and you know you respect the head of the family and elders and uh, and he was included on that uh, you know on that uh, in that scene and sitting at the table with her and again i'm i'm thinking maybe it's old so it, maybe it was it was not common in movies but regardless to me paul it seemed like the director wanted to show a little bit more the ins and outs of uh, how you process and progress within a relationship and uh, uh, how you involve the family, you know. And uh, it might not be necessarily correct that I wouldn't know, but it didn't seem like it was the disrespectful necessarily what they were showing us here calmly to boot. No, and, and I'm certainly no expert when it comes to these kinds of things. Uh, the modern era sensibilities have certainly changed, but it did feel genuine. So my guess is that perhaps there's something equivalent in the book um, mm. It did, you know, because she talks about not she's not going to her direct family. She, what she she's having her uncle, which I guess is the, sort of the family patriarch now, who and his his wife, her aunt, and they're all pure Chinese. And she's gone to address an issue with her sister, who like her is is Eurasian, but still that Chinese half falls under the the guidance of you know you are Chinese and you have to you know, act Chinese. Um, so, you know, not much leeway is to be given. And, mm. but as, as a result, she, out of respect, you know, says we need to do this. And they go through these, you know, the, this meeting and this discussion. And that felt very genuine to me. It felt like that would be the proper thing to do given this family structure. Um, and it was a very nice scene. And you do have a couple, again, uh, Asian actors, Asian American actors who, get a chance to be on screen with some dialogue and some lines and, and handle it um, they're probably better than, than the leads do in many cases. Yeah, I, I, I don't know Cantonese, but it seemed like uh, her her delivery of certain key lines was a little bit, uh, you know, it, it wasn't, uh, it isn't her first language, but uh, I wouldn't be able to do better because she, she talks uh, Chinese every now and again, you know, a little command here and there, a little bit, uh, a thank you here and there and yeah. things like that. But they, it, it was nice to see they did it, they, the various bit parts were for the Asian American actors, if they if they were, they they were uh, playing characters that that have titles that are you know heads of households rather than just uh, you know fortune tellers, waiters, or uh, you know or God forbid prostitutes or what have you. So at, at least uh, you know we tried to vary up the character character gallery mm -hmm. in a time where I think you you roll the dice and it might be the inclusion of any Asian character might be very offensive or somewhat progressive. And, and, and I felt like the movie did its best to provide that, despite being a classical romance uh, in intent uh, when all is said and done. So uh, a few plus points, uh, definitely. The, the, the wealth and the, uh, the, and the sort of elite, the rule things, uh, their depiction is far from subtle. You know the the Palmer Jones couple, and I, I gather they owned a hospital or had a uh, 
you know, stake in the hospital where they could uh, order around anyone as they like if they wanted uh, Dr. Han Soo Jin as their personal doctor when they twisted their ankle a little bit. You know, I shall have her now. You know, they they were very entitled, and uh, there, there was some uh, dialogue at the top uh, where she, uh, the Palmer Jones uh, uh, lady, uh, she was very uh, happy. Here you can get ten servants for the price of one. Yeah. So, yep, that's the kind of person you are. Now we know your character, essentially. You know, entitled and stuck-up elite, but. Uh, that's not the movie's main uh, sort of. Uh, uh, it doesn't throw ammo at that constantly or anything. It's not a big takedown of uh, wealth and elite. It's a uh, part of the characterization, but uh, but uh, I certainly um, I certainly um, spotted that. So. Yeah, we'll see a bit more of that uh, going forward with the the next film uh, as well. I, I think the last little note that I, I just want to throw out there, and then I'll throw it back over to you, Ken, is there is a little bit of. Uh, emphasis too again on the the idea of where does Chinese Ness lie one of her fellow doctors has a conversation with her about the need to go back to China and to tend to the Chinese and these being the sort of the communist Chinese because it's during the time that communism is rising and you have uh, a large exodus of refugees and you know that being sort of where loyalty should lie and her own sense of identity not being in line with that, but also being as a woman and, and as a doctor. And, you know, so there's there's a divergence of views there um, towards the end of the film, which I think is interesting. They, again, they don't go too deep into it because they're trying to focus more on the romance side of things. Um, and that's there. And with, with regard to the romance, again, the sort of beach bay scene is one of the more iconic moments of this film. And I'm reminded of them swimming across the bay to a friend's house, one of Hansian's friends, and thinking to myself, nobody would do that today. <laughs> you just wouldn't want to be in that water today. Um, Is there uh, any clean water anywhere in Hong Kong anymore? And no. I'm reminded <laughs> no. too, I think there was, I think it's one of the airplane movies maybe, where it's a flashback and the two characters are like meeting on the beach and they're playing the theme song in the background and the waves wash over them and it comes back and they're like covered in seaweed and garbage yeah, or something. <laughs> it's, it's probably a parody of that uh, Burt Lancaster movie, uh, Something Something Away. Uh, again, completely yeah. ignorance. But uh, there is a famous scene where there's a kissing scene on the beach and the tide comes in and it's perfect. And in the airplane movies, they are, they're covered with seaweed yeah. because that's what the water contains. It's realism, damn it, in the airplane. <laughs> so I was just thinking along those same lines. It's like, yep, yeah, no, the... If you do this movie today in the modern era, you're not going to be swimming across the bay um, unless you want to go right into the hospital. So um, <laughs> that's it for my notes. Let me throw it back over uh, to Ken with his final thoughts. I don't think I have anything else to add. I mean, if you're interested in old Hollywood and uh, looking for somewhere to explore, I don't know where to start necessarily. Um, other than, uh, you know, you, you you can start anywhere in the various different eras, I suppose, if you want to look at romantic Hollywood movies. But uh, if you're if you're into listening to this series, if I want to look at it from the view of the podcast, one thing that struck me is that I'm I'm kind of finding it delightful to add to the library of other movies looking in on Hong Kong, because uh, it's also often uh, much more much better presented technically. You know whether whether Hong Kong is shooting it or French production is shooting it, and it captures. 50s and 60s Hong Kong in a very uh, fun way and it doesn't seem that terribly disrespectful either so that has fueled my interest for you know finding other movies of this kind and uh, even though it might not be this slam dunk romantically you heard the leads weren't into each other at all one of them being incredibly immature about it uh, still it's if you have an interest in Hong Kong and want to know more, even if it's basic surface level stuff because it isn't a history lesson, it's, it, it does come recommended in a way. And but but what I do recommend is sitting down and actually appreciating that it uh, doesn't go for the shallow romance only, but tries to set it against uh, timely reality because of what they're talking about. That must have still felt like fresh content if uh, if a hong kong audience saw this in 1955 and they referenced 1949 
that I'm sure was still very relevant memories and that a Hollywood movie tries to explain it and put it in context and not one not make fun of it obviously but uh, to actually try to make it a backdrop uh, this non-visual backdrop because again we we rarely see these external conflicts that I think uh, it deserves uh, some props for uh, that it tackles that challenge of uh, uh, telling us of the events off screen but not uh, overdoing it and uh, throwing exposition on us and uh, but that that isn't what the movie is about uh, the core is romance and unfortunately that is uh, uh, a bit too lacking for for my taste uh, but um, easy enough you know it's not a three hour epic about these things so it's uh, it's easy enough to get through all right Let's talk. So, like, like, I'm too old to be negative nowadays, Paul. I say, nah, it wasn't that good, but I'm happy. I'm quite happy. I saw it. Like, give me a new police story. Maybe I'll like, yeah, he tried his best to act drunk. I mean, he's fine. He's done so much. Maybe I'll be happier nowadays. Happy can. That's what we all want to hear, right? Yeah. Um, all right. Let's talk a little bit about availability. So uh, availability is pretty easy to get a hold of if you don't mind streaming platforms. There are HD versions of out, out there for both iTunes and Amazon currently around the $10 mark. Um, and I think rentals um, can be found a little bit more cheaply. If you're looking for the physical media, though, however, uh, things have changed slightly for some reason, I guess, because of the printing has stopped. Um the version that I picked up about a year ago is the Blu-ray from uh, Studio Twilight Time, U.S. Blu-ray release, right. which at the time when I bought it, it was the Blu-ray was at the $30 mark, and that was new. And now it seems that's no longer available, but it's listed through mm-hmm. second-party providers at the $89 mark. Yeah, they're limited usually with Twilight series, yeah. I believe, as well, because it, it isn't obviously the the original. Who made this originally? Was there was it uh, Fox at the top? Yeah, it was yeah, Fox, yeah. wasn't it? So it isn't there. So so Twilight, uh, the the kind of like uh, a little bit of a Criterion label only. Their DVDs don't stay, or blues don't yeah. stay in print for that long. So um, I mean, there's availability out there, but that's a really inflated price um, in just a very short period of time. Uh, for being, I guess, out of print now. So the there's a, I see they have a Spanish version out there around the thirty dollar mark. But um, I, you know, again, region might be a factor, and uh, you know, subtitles and dubbing issues um, for that disc, you know, may not be what you want. There, the twentieth century Fox uh, release of the DVD is also um, inflated in price a bit. It's around the $36 mark, too, um, through second-party providers. I think there are other DVDs out there that you can find um, used uh, at a cheaper rate, um, you know, depending on if you're willing to go for um, dealing with region code and stuff like that. If you have players that are, you know, region-free and stuff like that, shouldn't be too much of a problem. But uh, the easiest solution right now, of course, is to go the streaming digital version route. If you can get access to that, it's uh, cheap and readily available. And the HD version looks pretty damn uh, splen- 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 or splendid. <laughs> but it really looks good, too. So they've done a good job uh, bringing this movie up to date. listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Visit kongcast.com for more. All right, that's going to wrap it up. You have been listening to Hong Kong on Hollywood, a sub-series of the East Screen West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Jabor of Snazer Radio Orchestra. Research has come from a variety of sources, but primarily lovehkfilm.com and the Hong Kong Movie Database. We also get a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you. If you would like to be part of the show, please get in touch with us via the website at concast.com. You can find us on Twitter at concast. You can email us at eastscreen at gmail.com. And you can find us on Facebook at eastswests. As always, please do keep up with my co-host and all that he does, Mr. Kenny B. So, sir, where can they find out more about you? 
Well, we do a couple of uh, shows over at the Podcast on Fire network, including Podcast on Fire that mainly deals in Hong Kong movies of uh, old mostly, but uh, some new as well. We try to provide nuanced but fun discussions of uh, some of the movies uh, you love, whether they're from Jackie Chan or Stephen Chow or what have you, but we're always uh, expanding uh, the format. Heck, I might even attempt to talk about Wong Kar Wai movie without uh, without uh, stumbling or without uh, being infuriated. Who knows? Because I'm happy, Ken. <laughs> I, I want to try and understand things here, but uh, hey, uh, at, uh, at any rate, uh, we're available on podcastonfire.com and uh, wherever you get podcasts excellent um so yes please do check them out and all the great work that they do um our next show in this series well it's more william holden whether you like it or not uh, because we're going to be looking at the 1960 film the world of Susie wong so how does uh, mr holden compare as yet another leading man in hong kong uh this time wooing the likes of miss nancy kwan who we've seen before briefly in the uh, noble house miniseries so all of that and more on our next show until then this is the east screen west screen podcast saying don't chew garlic before a kissing scene just don't that's gross uh and we'll see you next time nor insects <laughs> bye-bye